Welcome to the fourth season of the Fixing Healthcare podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the seventh episode of the current season. In this, our fourth season of Fixing Healthcare, we focus on big ideas and the people behind them. Each of our guests have made major contributions in a broad range of fields, and all were invited due to their unique expertise specific to the coronavirus. For those of you wanting more details about COVID-19, you can listen to our bi-weekly show titled Coronavirus, the truth. On it, we provide the most up-to-date information on this pandemic. You can also check out my website, robertperlmd.com. There you'll find links to articles on the virus itself, along with information on its economic and social consequences. Once there, I encourage as many of you as possible to participate in the reader's survey about the impact this pandemic is having on you and your loved ones. Once again, that's robertperlmd.com. Our guest today is Anne Wojcicki. She earned her degree in science at Yale and then did biological research at the National Institute of Health. In 2006, she co-founded 23andMe, a genomics and biotechnology company that provides genetic testing to over 10 million people. The company is named for the 23 pairs of chromosomes in a normal human cell. In 2015, the company received FDA approval for its health-related tests The company is currently working to understand the genetic basis for the variation in severity different individuals experience from COVID-19. Hi, Anne. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Robbie. Great to be here. Excellent. This is season four of Fixing Healthcare. This season is focused on big ideas and the people who make them happen. And you are clearly one of those. And your company, 23andMe, is leading the nation and the world in genomics and genetic screening. We'll come to all those details in a second. But Anne, can you start by telling listeners a little bit about your background? How did you get interested in this particular area? Well, I had, you know, like everyone out there, I'm a healthcare consumer, um, and I've had my experiences in in the healthcare system. And I have to say, thanks to actually your previous employer at, at Kaiser Permanente, I felt like I actually had a real position about how I want to interact with my physicians and and the system. And I ended up working on Wall Street for about 10 years investing in healthcare companies. And I learned through that experience that healthcare worked in actually a way that surprised me and that it was entirely a B2B business, meaning it was just from like business entity to business entity. And that I, the consumer, actually didn't really have much voice. And when I interacted with hospitals and insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers, like all the way down the chain, I started to realize that what was in the best interest of the consumer was often lost and that you just didn't have a voice. I'd be on calls and everyone would be talking about, you know, uh, a decision, but, but the patient was never there. 
And I started to realize that I really wanted to have that voice. And I could think back on my experience of, um, again, my physicians and how I felt like I actually was taught more about how to take care of myself. And I was, it was more of a partnership. And when I saw that genetics was, um, there were some real breakthroughs happening. You know, the human genome was sequenced in the early part of the century. You had low cost testing came forward with companies like Affymetrics and Illumina. And I started to think more and more that this was an incredible technology that was never going to reach consumers because the system wasn't necessarily ever going to be set up in such a way that it would make genetic testing readily accessible. And I decided that I wanted to change that. And at the same time, I happened to see the, the social networking world taking off. Um, again, I, was, I had the fortune of seeing Google start in my sister's garage. I saw the web 2.0 world taking off of like companies like Flickr. And I said, wow, like there's not only this opportunity of having low cost genetic testing, but there's actually a way to crowdsource you know, healthcare, discoveries, research, by allowing people to get access to their genetic information and then to socialize. And so 23andMe really came out of this vision that we wanted to have a company that was consumer first and that we were going to be crowdsourcing the, you know, discoveries of the genetic revolution that we would all then benefit from. So before we get into some of the details about 23andMe, maybe for listeners, you could provide the basics on DNA and genetic inheritance for those who might not have been a science major. For sure. So genetics was always something that fascinated me. And I had this experience as a child where my mom one day was yelling at my sister about something and she kept yelling about her genes. And I was confused. I was five at the time and I was confused because she was wearing pants or she was wearing shorts. And, and I kept thinking she doesn't have jeans on, she has shorts. And my mom then was explaining like, no, this is what genes are. This is the genetic material that comes from your parents you know, you get half from your mom, half from your dad, it comes down, and you actually share the same DNA with all of life on this planet, like everyone. And you have the four basic building blocks, the A, C, G, and T. And that different combination, it's almost like cooking. You can like put together these different patterns and I could produce a banana or I could produce um, a monkey, I could produce a tree, or I can produce you, the human. And what's so interesting is that humans are 99.5% the same. We are so utterly similar. And it's this tiny, tiny percent of our differences that make us all unique and frankly represents all this diversity on, on the planet. And frankly, it's, it's each one of those mutations that is this phenomenal story of our survival, like how we have managed to all be a little bit different, but um, you know, make sure that you know, the human species is, is around for, for a long time. And that when there are significant viruses like HIV, there's some people who are genetically like, you know, resistant to it. And, and that's part of the beauty of having this kind of diversity is that we're all uh, good for good at something. And what interested me back in that conversation with my mother is my mother was explaining, like, you have some things in your genes that you're um, predisposed for. So like, I'm, you know, I have a genetic, um, you know, combination to make me have a heart and to make my hair brown. But 
but there's things like my environment about whether or not I am going to be type two diabetic and I could have a genetic risk factor, but it's things that I do in my environment that are going to decide whether or not I actually have that condition. And I just love this concept that there was essentially, I got a deck of cards, I got my hand and, and I know that I have certain kinds of risks, but I actually have so much that's in my control because I can control many aspects of my environment. And what was exciting for me is that there's actually an opportunity for me to change my behaviors so I could be as healthy as I wanted to be. And, and that's frankly what excited me the most is you know this opportunity to learn about genetics as well as to learn about our environment and what are those environmental factors that really increase risk. So you mentioned DNA sequencing. How does the technology that you use in 23andMe differ from other people doing full DNA sequencing? Yeah, we don't do full genome sequencing. We do something called genotyping. And the purpose of genotyping is to look at just the small areas that are known to vary from human to human. So I mentioned that humans are 99.5% the same. So in some ways, there's not a reason to go and sequence all of you because we're we're all going to be we're going to be repeating essentially the same sequence over and over again but there's a reason to look at that 0.5% and that's where we we spend most of our time looking at that area that is known to be variable that said for people who have rare disease or they have a spontaneous um, you know that's something that is really unusual whole genome sequencing can make sense there because you can always have some of these new mutations that would not be represented in the technology that we are using now. And how many of those little snippets does your laboratory examine? We test for about 700,000 of those little mutations. So what are a few of the biggest findings you've uncovered with major medical implications? We have over now 150 publications that we've come out with. And, you know, one of the first publications that we came out with, I'm really proud of, and it was called The Efficient Replication of Over 170 Genome-Wide Association Studies by 23andMe. And the reason why I love that paper is because it showed the idea that we could really do research at scale. Because in the early days, people were really skeptical about our ability to ask our customers to self-report information about themselves and that we would actually be able to make novel findings. And if you think about each, each time I read a paper, you look at it and you say, oh, here's a breast cancer finding or something in schizophrenia. Each one of those papers is incredibly expensive. You know, it could be $5 million, could be $10 million. It's expensive. And what I loved about our paper was that it showed early on that in a relatively efficient, scalable, and inexpensive way, I could replicate over 170 known findings. So that was, I think, is like almost one of our seminal papers that came out. Since then, you know, once we showed that we could replicate, then people had confidence in some of the, the new discoveries that we were making. And I think one of the papers that I'm most proud of is a paper that we have on depression, where it was actually thanks to the 450,000 customers who answered our surveys, um, where we were able to find a number of novel mutations associated with depression. So most studies 
are in the hundreds or maybe a thousand individuals. But for us to have a study of 450,000 people, it shows the type of scale of research that 23andMe can do and the fact that we can make findings that no one else really can find. So the depression one was, again, very meaningful because a lot of people wrote in saying, um, you know, depression is incredibly hard, uh, you know, d disease to manage. Um, and for people to see that they've potentially contributed in some way was very meaningful and that there are potentially genetic reasons for them to have this was also very meaningful. Just what last one of my other favorite papers um, was one that we did on a disease uh, called prion disease and was also done with the Broad. And it was a, a woman who actually has um, the genetic risk factor for this disease herself. And she asked us to, to look at our database at the 23andMe community. And we looked at a number of mutations were thought to be causing this disease. But because we could see that some of those mutations had a certain frequency in the population, we could say they are not disease causing, meaning they're not pathogenic. And so it was really important because, um, you know, a lot of times scientists or people who have an illness are looking to see, is this mutation associated with this disease? And being able to accurately call and let people know, yes, this mutation is actually disease calling or no, this mutation is not disease calling is obviously really meaningful in, in getting a diagnosis. So that was one of my other favorite papers because I feel like it's a, it's a rare disease. Um, it was a person who herself was trying to manage her own conditions and I felt like we were able to really have an impact on, um, on people who are genetically risked for that condition. What percent of disease do you think has a clearly defined uh, genetics either a dominant or recessive inheritance? And what percent do you think is just purely multifactorial? That's a very good question, Robbie. Um, I can't say percentages, but I can say that there's certain diseases like um, BRCA or Lynch syndrome for, so BRCA for breast cancer, Lynch syndrome for colon cancer, where you see a specific mutation really has a significant effect size. And frankly, those are rare. Some of the screening, when I've heard about people who are doing um, whole genome or whole exome sequencing on healthy populations, they say between two and 3% find something that is significant. Um, so the other area that we look at are what we call, again, some of these mutations that have a, a, not as strong of an effect size or some areas that we're starting to look at called polygenic risk scores. And that means we're looking at um, you know, hundreds of mutations or thousands of mutation that add up into a score on a common disease. So something like heart disease or type two diabetes. And that's where I think that you have genetic risk factors that really potentially predispose you, but there's a huge environmental component. And I would say um, it's a small percent that's gonna have the gene where it's like really is a big effect size. And the majority of people are gonna have genes where they have risks, but the environment is gonna play quite a significant role. When do you think we'll know scientifically whether these associations are correlations or causations? I think my team would say pretty strongly that they have, um, that with the size of the data that we have, that we know that these associations are not random, that these are causative. No, by that I mean that we'll understand how they cause the disease. 
on what the, exactly what they produce so that we can start developing new medications or new treatments to reverse it? That's a great question. And that actually gets us into a lot of our, our drug discovery world, where what happens is that I can absolutely see a number of mutations that are associated with a disease. So just because a mutation is associated with the disease doesn't mean that that's necessarily a drug target, but that puts us down the entire pipeline and the funnel of what we call functional genomics of really understanding, you know, what does that mutation do? And is that mutation actually in that gene? Is that the protein that is actually associated downstream of any kind, whatever the disease is? And um, so that's where we do, there's a whole functional genomics work stream of trying to understand exactly then what is the biology that was translated by that mutation. And so that is, um, I don't have specific numbers on that. And I think that there were some estimates that, you know, roughly a small percentage, like under 10% of those specific mutations, that it's that gene that's actually associated with um, the disease and that it's actually rather that that gene that protein associated with some other aspect of the biology you're a biologist and obviously an expert in genetics how are you thinking about the coronavirus and the current pandemic that exists well one thing i am lucky to be surrounded by um, a lot of people who are m much better biologists and scientists and virologists than, than I ever was. Um, and my team, uh, when I've talked to them, there's actually, I think, a couple things. One, I think that there's a respect for the fact that there's very little that's actually understood about this virus and why it manifests in such a diverse number of symptoms. But secondly, I think that there is a decent amount of optimism about the potential for an antibody for treatment as well as as a vaccine for prevention and you know some questions about you know is it a vaccine that will once will it be able to sustain itself over time um but i think that there is definitely more optimism than i would have expected about the potential for a vaccine and a treatment did you contemplate getting involved in either the the acute testing for viral infection or the antibody testing to see whether someone's had the disease? We definitely thought quite a bit about whether or not 23andMe should be part of the testing solutions for, for COVID-19. We spent a lot of time talking with individuals about how we could potentially help. We, it turns out we have a level of expertise around direct-to-consumer as well as around saliva that you know, a lot of other companies starting the COVID-19 testing didn't necessarily have. We decided ultimately that companies like LabCorp and Quest and groups that already run their own labs were going to be better suited to manage that, at least in the short term, and that we were absolutely open to helping anyone and that we were absolutely interested in partnering when there is a true direct-to-consumer COVID-19 test out there. But at this time, you know, as you know, COVID-19 testing is in, in short supply still and a direct-to-consumer option seems like it's still a little bit further out. What are your thoughts on the snafu? I mean, here we are four months out and we can't effectively test with consistent results, either for viral infection with a 20 to 30% false uh, negative rate 
or antibody-wise where we can't get consistently lab results. What's your expertise in this area tell us about the snafus that exist? I have to say that the snafus in testing, um, I haven't dug into it so deeply, but it confuses me because it's not, you know, we should be able to scale. And the, the, our inability to have sort of a coordinated plan has, it, it confuses me. And um, as I've talked to a number of individuals and, and various companies in the space, um, I think there's just a real lack of coordination. It's too bad because I get, you know, even we in, our, in my close circle, we've had, you know, false positives and you get people who are sick and, you know, the lack of testing is hard. It's really, really hard on people. And I think that it's going to be hard for us to ever really manage this until we, we have that. So again, I've, we've worked with LabCorp as our uh, testing partner for years. I know that they're totally slammed and hopefully, you know, groups will be able to scale and there can be more centralized organization. Your company obtains the specimens through saliva. And I'm a big believer that if we're going to use testing to eradicate the virus, it's going to require a massive amount being done by individuals on a frequent basis. And I can't imagine doing that with nasal swabs or any kind of intravenous drawing of samples, although that obviously would not tell you the acute disease. How can we get there using oral testing? I'm sure you've seen the research coming out of Yale that says the oral actually may be better than the nasal. How can we, how can we make this happen in a way that we can now truly get our arms around this virus at a national level that today we're obviously not doing? It's a great question. We had, um, we actually spent some time in the early days, a number of groups and even some um, state departments had, or health departments had reached out to us to chat about saliva testing. And our kit is not ideal for saliva testing because we actually, um, we have a number of enzymes in, in the buffer that don't, don't keep the virus alive. So there's other mediums that would be better to use. That said, I, I, whether it's a, a nasal kit or it's a saliva kit, I think the key element is that more healthcare and especially this kind of testing has to be done at home because making it that something that you have to go through a physician for, or it has to be through the note, like it's just, it's too complicated and you need to be able to make the testing um, affordable, cheap enough so that I could keep, you know, 10 kits in my house and I could just either spit and send it in regularly on a weekly basis. So I think the only way that you're going to get something like that is a centralized coordinated plan in partnership with the FDA. And I am optimistic. I have talked to a number of companies that actually are developing low cost at home coronavirus tests. The reality is those are just going to, they're going to have to get an approval. Um, they're going to have to work first and foremost. They're going to have to get an approval and you know, that you're gonna need support of, of the centralized, of, of the government. Scaling in this way is incredibly expensive and there will just need to be you know, money and, and resources that support scaling a test like this. There's more variation in people's response to this virus than any other disease I can think about from 40% of people being asymptomatic to other individuals rapidly becoming hospitalized, intubated, and dying. Do we have any insights into the genetic basis for this difference in response? 
We have done, 23andMe launched a COVID-19 study on April 6th, and we now have over a million people who've taken this survey. We have, you know, tens of thousands of people who said they've been hospitalized, thousands of people who are, tens of thousands who said that they had it, uh, thousands of people who were hospitalized. Um, and we were able to make a number of discoveries. The only one that we've publicly talked about is the O blood type looks like it's protective. And um, roughly, you know, anywhere from nine to 20% protective in terms of severity as well as susceptibility. So that is exciting because I think it shows it's been replicated a number of times. I think it's um, something that looks, you know, helps us start to understand a little bit about, about the disease. And again, to the points of your other questions, like one of the most important things here is just trying to understand how this uh, virus actually works and why there is such variability. Um, I am really interested to see, um, are there genetics of why some people are asymptomatic and some people have such an acute response? We will not be able to get to those kinds of findings without more academic partnerships. I have been really happy to see a number of these academic collaborators that have come together. And so that's something over time, um, as people start to pool together their data, we will absolutely participate in that. And we would absolutely be eager to help make any of those discoveries that you know, help us understand who is susceptible and you know, likely to have a severe disease. We are giving away, we said we are giving away over 10,000 kits to individuals who were hospitalized. So that's also you know, an aspect of the effort that we have, that we are underway on. Getting back to the more general theme, where do you see the next set of frontiers in this genetic testing realm and our understanding of inheritance going? Where are the big breakthroughs going to happen over the next decade? I think the next big breakthroughs are going to be around these polygenic risk scores and really starting to break down each disease into very much more specific subtypes. So look at something like type 2 diabetes, where I can see that there's, you know, a percentage of our customers that are genetically just much more likely to, to have it. Um, and you can see this also with drug response, that some people are going to respond well to certain kinds of medications, and some people are not going to respond well to those same medications. So I think that every single disease is going to start to get classified into um, a genetically defined um, set of risks. And you'll look at uh, you know, cancers or um, heart disease, osteoporosis, other areas where you probably start to break it down into a number of different subtypes that are defined based on their genetics. I think another area that is going to evolve over time is right now, and again, along the same themes, right now when I go to a doctor, they look at me and they say, okay, you're a European woman, you're Jewish, um, and um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of racially profiled and, and you know, religiously profiled in my case, capacity. But the reality is you know, I'm from a bunch of different countries and I'm half Jewish. And I think about my friends who are, you know, African-American or could be African and Chinese. And, you know, the reality is medicine is also going to go the direction of um, no longer being about the racial profiling when they see someone, but actually getting into um, the genetics of those individuals and that you have this type of you know, genetic mutation and therefore these risk factors and not necessarily as much about that profiling of an individual. So I think a lot of you know, medicine is going to start to just be defined based on the molecular level rather than 
um, you know, some of the gross categories that, um, you know, people currently fall into. I'm sure there's been some really interesting individuals who have either had the test, testing done for disease or testing done for ancestry. Do you have any favorite stories about people who made remarkable discoveries getting, after getting the results of the tests? You never get tired of hearing a story about somebody who you really saved their life. And we get, we get hundreds of stories on a weekly basis from our customers about um, ancestry related or health related. And the ones that stand out are um, oftentimes around um, the breast cancer mutation or the, you know, the colon cancer mutation where people say, uh, you know, I did 23andMe, I was interested in looking at my ancestry or I wanted to find out my Neanderthal score and lo and behold, I find out I'm genetically, you know, high risk for, you know, potentially fatal disease. And, you know, you hear these stories of people who um, go in and they find out they actually had early, you know, early disease, they have young children, um, and it's incredibly emotional because without that knowledge, they probably would have had the disease and, and died of it. So, you know, there's no greater reward for me than knowing that we potentially prevented um, a preventable death. And it's one of the things I think about is one of the mottos of the company is change what you can, manage what you can't. And these cases where customers can learn that they have a, you know, potentially pathogenic mutation and there's something that they can you know, manage, you know, with a mastectomy or proactive screening and you can prevent a preventable death, it's hugely rewarding. So I think by far and away, the health side of our business has, um, produces incredibly meaningful results. Would you mind sharing one of the stories like you were talking about earlier where you did save somebody's life or made a huge impact on their life like that? Yeah, we have one story in particular where it is a woman in New York and um, she's done some testimonials for us where she talks about, you know, I, um, her sister had breast cancer and she was told that there was no reason to do the BRCA testing and she did 23andMe um, for fun to, to find out whether or not she had the sprinter variation. She was very competitive and um, she wanted to know whether or not she was going to be faster than her husband and, you know, for fun. And she was really utterly shocked when it came back that she had one of the, the three breast cancer mutations that we test for. And she ended up following with her doctor and going forward and having a double mastectomy. And, and she said, she's like, look, it was, it was hard. Um, you know, there's nothing easy about getting that kind of news, but we absolutely saved her life. And she talks about how it would have been missed, you know, by her, the, her physician, because she was told specifically that she should not get testing. And in some ways, like that's the part that always confounds me the most because testing now is relatively inexpensive and, um, and accessible. So, so why not? Like why everyone is not tested is, is beyond me. Like everyone, 
um, should get tested. I mean, even for me, I was surprised. Like I had to argue about, you know, having genetic testing for my third child. And it, it just amazes me that the insurance system makes it hard for people to get genetic testing when you might so easily be able to prevent um, an unnecessary death. So this woman who, again, has, been, has, has remained a friend of the company's and has been very proactive about, you know, talking about breast cancer testing and BRCA and 23andMe and the advantages of, you know, being able to easily get a test and learn something that's potentially life-saving. Where do you see the company going next? It's really interesting because we're at the intersection of um, significant scale for 23andMe. We have over 12 million customers now. Um, we have a incredibly exciting pipeline on our drug discovery side, and I also have COVID-19. And COVID-19, while um, awful for the world, has been miraculous in how it has transformed digital healthcare. And one of the core tenants of 23andMe has always been um, helping that we believe our customers should have access and that they can understand their genetic information. And, you know, that's part of the reason why we did fight the fight with the FDA to say, you know, this can go without a physician and it can be at home and it can be affordable and you don't need to go through your um, insurance provider. And I think there's a lot more of healthcare, thanks to COVID-19, that is going to have to be delivered at home. And I think policies have started to change and adoption curves have absolutely skyrocketed. And I think that there's a really exciting world where um, you're going to have true at-home health. And I think the beauty of at-home health is you stay healthy. Like when I think about, again, genetic risk factors and environment, if I'm going to change my exercise or change my diet or stop smoking or, you know, think about my sleep and my stress, all key factors that impact, um, you know, my health, that's all stuff that's going to happen at home. So I feel really optimistic about, you know, the potential to really understand genetic risk factors and the opportunities for digital health to take off and, really have meaningful outcomes for people to not just live longer, but to live longer better. I know your company obviously doesn't do this, but what are your thoughts on things like CRISPR and other aspects of genetic change? If you, once you understand you have a genetic problem, uh, where do you see genetic change going? I think, you know, CRISPR is a fabulous tool for research. And I think we, the, our therapeutics team definitely looks at that with um, as we're thinking about drug discovery and, and treatment options. Um, I think there's a long discussion and ethics conversation around the using CRISPR and genetic mutations for embryos. And again, almost similar to, to what I said about coronavirus, I have incredible respect for the human genome and the complexity. And that even when we understand a little bit and a little bit more about the genome, we will never fully understand it. And that you start to move things around and you CRISPR one area, understanding what those consequences are is, it's risky, um, uh, knowing exactly what those outcomes are gonna be. So, and you're playing with lives there. So I think that there's great opportunity for really, um, you know, 
treating and potentially curing rare disease. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity. Um, and I think, you know, there just needs to be, you know, real ethics oversight about how we want to approach it. If there's one thing that you could change from a regulatory or an oversight perspective, what would that be? Oh, I think that right now we're in a very interesting time period because 23andMe is the only direct-to-consumer genetic test out there, yet there's a number of genetic testing companies. And a lot of them use a loophole where they have a physician service on the back end that is often not transparent to the customer. And they're able, they, you know, return genetic results. And the, the reason why I, the loophole worries me because as I look at these other products, they don't go through the same kind of rigorous, rigorous analytical testing and um, comprehension testing that 23andMe has done. And I worry that when you tell someone something about their health and about their genetics, that you really do have um, opportunity to do harm. And as much as it was hard for us when we got our warning letter in 2013, everything that we have done for the FDA has made us a much higher quality company. And I worry now that there are, um, you know, 100 plus companies out there returning genetic results to uh, customers, and uh, it doesn't have the same kind of review. And I worry about the true opportunity for harm. Yeah, and I actually kind of want to dovetail off of what you were just talking about, because I actually, a couple of years ago, I went on a work retreat, um, and there was a woman there who was like an alternative medicine healer, but they were giving everybody on this work retreat um, the ability to do a DNA test that they would send into her company, and then she would come back and give you uh, medical advice based on um, the findings of like the, the, the test. And it was interesting because even though she was, you know, kind of an alternative medicine healer, because there was that aspect of the, the DNA test involved, everybody, except for a couple of us instantly was like, whoa, yeah, she must really know what she's doing. And it was just super interesting to me. And can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, what does this look like where people could use the term or use the the concept of a DNA test, but really be, you know, maybe not that qualified to really discuss or utilize the results correctly. Are there a lot of, you know, I hate to say it, but quacks in your space? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who use the, you know, genetic testing and, you know, try to associate it with science and um, some reports that are out there. And as you guys know, um, you can have a publication that comes out in a journal, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And that was a, one of those important concepts I had to get to, you know, my mother to understand. I was like, just because something's published once doesn't necessarily mean it's true. You want to get things that are replicated. You want to see what kind of study it was done. And, you know, for example, there's lots of people who want to associate your genome with vitamins. And in, in fact, we have, there's some people who will look at the 23andMe, the raw data, and there's a specific mutation that they look at. And people will actually stop me at the farmer's market. And they're like, oh, I looked at this mutation and now I take this vitamin and I just love it. 
And it worries me because I've, I've asked my scientists over and over again, can we please look at this mutation? And there's no genetic association that we can find with the vitamin, with anything else, with any other kind of phenotype. And so I worry that um, a lot of things end up being sold that are not necessarily, um, that have not gone through the same kind of validation process that, that we have gone through. And in some ways, a vitamin is, um, you know, not as harmful as someone telling you like, oh, you, you know, you might have a risk factor for sudden cardiac death, but maybe that mutation's not valid. Like that, that's what really scares me for these people is that you can genuinely cause a lot of anxiety and, um, and worry for people. And again, if it's not based on, um, science that I would necessarily feel comfortable with or my team would feel comfortable with, then, then I worry about it. So I do think that, you know, genetics and DNA is often used uh, as a way of like making it seem like, oh, I am like, I, I am very like, I'm a scientist and I am, I know a lot here. And sometimes, like I said, I, I worry about if, if the government is not going to regulate it more aggressively, that um, people can really get led down the wrong kind of path. And that kind of, one of the other things I'm curious about too, is you talked about that personalized uh, medicine kind of knowing, hey, maybe I'm at more of a risk for this cancer, or maybe I need to, you know, maybe my, I'm, I'm going to have a negative reaction to this medicine. When you take all of that information and put it together and mix it with kind of that whole health uh, primary care concept, uh, to where it's more of like that relationship with the primary care doctor and they really get to know each other and and it's more than just, okay, I'm here because I have a cold. What do you think the future of a primary care provider, you know, having this kind of information and, and customizing the way they treat and advise their everyday patient on how to live their life and, you know, maybe how often to get tested for certain kinds of cancers or do certain screenings, kind of what does that look like to you in the future? I think it's a it's a really good question um, and one that I've often posed. Like I think Robbie and I, we've even sat down and chatted about this. Like one of the issues is that no one makes money in healthcare by keeping you healthy. And fundamentally, if I tell you you're diabetic, lots of people in the system, in the healthcare system as it is today, will make money from the companies that make insulin to the needles to the testing to the doctor's visits to all of the downstream consequences. But if I tell you you're genetically high risk for type two diabetes, and then you change your diet, and you check in with your doctor and you're like, yeah, I've lost weight, I've done this, I exercise more, no one's making money. So I, I, I've always struggled with this, that in some ways it, it gets back to sort of what I first talked about why I started the company what's in your best interest isn't represented in the system, not because the people who are in the system don't care, but that the payments and the way we monetize and fun fundamentally money is what makes the world goes round. Like the money doesn't, isn't there to keep you healthy. So when I think about primary care and the ideal situation of where genetics goes, and again, I think about, I said, my kids were all tested at birth. Um, I look at them and I can say, oh, okay, you know, someone is genetically high risk for type two diabetes or high cholesterol. And I think about like, how am I using the environment to make sure like, can I train them like to eat in a certain way or be more mindful of exercise or, 
if they're genetically high risk for macular degeneration, can I teach them the importance of wearing sunglasses? Um, but frankly, the, the excitement for me on the digital healthcare world is that it's not necessarily your doctor's responsibility to get you to change weight, you know, change your diet, lose weight, stop smoking. Like they're not the ones who are coming to your house or checking in with you on a daily basis. Like that's potentially more where a digital health app is going to step in. And between your annual doctor visits, you need some kind of service that is, you know, frankly gonna, you know, text me as often as my, you know, Instagram app is reminding me, like, come and check here, like, come and check, like, hey, let's, how's your stress? Or, you know, thinking about meditation or your diet, did you exercise? So I think that primary care in the dream world would change, um, but until the reimbursement system changes where there is an incentive to get people to actually be healthier, I'm skeptical it will ever change. But I do think that consumers, since the consumer themselves have an interest in being healthier, I do think that there's a really interesting consumer world that is paid for by customers and um, is direct to consumer. And I think that that will start to, in some ways, replace primary care. One of the other things that I find super fascinating about the world you live in is I hear a lot of people who are just terrified of doing the the tests uh, primarily because they're worried about the security aspect, you know, in their minds and a lot of people's minds, you know, you know, getting your bank account or your credit card hacked is one thing, but having somebody come into control of your, I mean, your, your, your DNA data, your, your genome, I mean, that's terrifying for a lot of people. Can you talk a little bit about like what the privacy concerns, uh, what are you doing to prevent you know, people or to help kind of ease people's concerns about that. And also, are their concerns founded? We have, we've always said that you're, you know, we have no business if we can't protect your privacy. So we do everything we can reasonably to protect privacy. And, and you talk about, you know, the bank accounts, et cetera, um, while, you know, when I think about, like, if I'm talking to you, Jeremy, and I say, like, would I rather get access to your genetic information or your bank account? Like, frankly, your bank account might have more utility for me today. Like, it would definitely be. So as much as your genetic information is unique to you, your bank accounts actually are more interesting to the majority of the world. So we can learn a lot from the banking system and about their data and their privacy. We have been, we were really lucky in that a number of our earliest engineers came from the banking industry and really came to us with a mindset of like absolute privacy and choice and um, you know the highest level of security. So we just hired a chief security officer um, I've been really happy with the team about how proactive they are in terms of like protecting the privacy of our customers, being on top of it, um, the practices that we have in-house as well as what we put out to, to our customers. So you can never be 100% in data security, but it's about making sure that you're on top of it, that you have the right team, and that we as a management team are funding to make sure that we're doing everything that is reasonably possible. So it's absolutely a top priority for us. 
you ever come into contact with the people who just kind of want to keep their head in the sand? You know, they don't want to know what their risk factors are. They just kind of want to go through life not knowing those things. It's the concept of, you know, if I knew I was going to get hit by a car tomorrow, would I want to know? Yeah, we meet them all the time. Um, and we just say it's, it's, it's great. Like that's the, you know, part of the whole tenant of 23andMe is choice. You know, we're not the right product for everyone. It's what's really interesting for me is it's amazing how disarming that is for people because I think a lot of people are used to being bullied in healthcare and we're very clear, like it's a choice. Like it's absolutely your choice about how you want to live your life. And if you don't want to know, you don't have to know. But if you do want to know, we're going to tell you. And if you want to share that information with your family, we're going to enable it. And if you want to share that information with your doctor, we'll absolutely enable it. So in some ways, the fact that 23andMe gives people choice um, really confounds them at first. It takes a while because you're just not given that kind of choice ever in healthcare. When people ask you what percent of who we are is nature and what percent is nurture, what do you tell them? I tell them it's a, it's a fabulous balance between nature and nurture. It, it's, it's so interesting to me. And especially, you know, as I have three kids, I love looking at them and on the day they're born and the genetics, like I know their genetics I, and I'm thankful I've had all of their um, genomes done at birth. And I think about that almost on a daily basis. Like it's now my environment on a daily basis that is interacting with their genes. And in some areas where the genetics has us, you know, like there's a limit to how much I can influence eye color and hair color and, you know, certain genetic mutations for disease, but largely, um, you know, a good aspect of my children are um, the environment is going to influence them. And there's a great movie, I don't know if you've seen this, but Three Identical Strangers um, that talks a lot about this specific area of, of genes and environment. And there's, there's no one formula for any one trait. And it's, it's, um, it's going to be the fun, you know, fun mystery for us to figure this out for a long, long time. Thanks, Anne, for being on the show today and for your willingness to help figure out the role that genetics plays in our susceptibility to COVID-19 and the risks of people becoming critically ill from this coronavirus. Robbie, what are your thoughts on what Anne said? Jeremy, genomics is one of the fastest moving frontiers in science. Precision medicine will offer people more personalized medical care. The coronavirus will be a fascinating area for discovery. It's obvious that our immune system has a powerful influence on whether we become critically ill, but exactly how it does that, it's still unclear. We also know that if one's parents have a particular chronic disease, that they'll have a greater risk of developing it as well, but we don't yet understand exactly why and how that happens. Once we do, I believe major avenues will open up to not only increase longevity, but also improve our health and the quality of our lives. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts or other podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at fixinghcpodcast. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you want more information on these topics, please visit my website, robertperlmd.com. Together, 
We can make American healthcare once again the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Corr. Have a great day.